Thank you, Charlotte. Well, good morning. Glad you're here. Hopefully you have found the book of Philippians in your Bible or on your phone, Philippians chapter 1. I want to start off by having you think about your funeral. I know we don't usually want to think about our funerals, uh, but actually this is an exercise I've seen suggested in lots of different uh, periodicals and books and things that I've read, is thinking about what do you hope people are saying about you at your funeral? What are they saying about your manner of life? Are they, maybe they're saying you loved your friends and family, or you, uh, you, you brought joy to others, or you served people, or you served your country, or you were generous with your time and, and your, your money, or you worked really hard, or, or you had special skills that added value to the lives of many. And these would all be good things said at your funeral. And, and honestly, these are things that I oftentimes hear whenever I've been in, in those settings. But as a Christian, we're, we're hoping that they're saying something more, that, that they're, they're looking at those things of, of loving one's family or being generous with one's time and money or working hard, and, and they're saying, yes, that, that is the life or the manner of life that that person lived, but that manner of life comes from their value of Christ and what Christ did for them. Th this is what Paul is getting at in this first verse that was read of verse 27. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That this life that we live is pointing to the worthiness, the value of Christ and his gospel. So a couple questions come out of that. Why is this gospel so worthy? Why is it so valuable that it would determine our manner of life? And then secondly, what is that manner of life? Right? So why is it so worthy? And what is this life that is worthy of the gospel? So why is it so worthy, so valuable? Well, because again, it's the gospel of Christ. I talked about this last week. If if, if you're a genuine Christian, you believe that Christ is your greatest gain. You hear this in Paul's uh, writing, Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul is saying he values Jesus above all things. Whether he's getting Jesus in this life or he's getting Jesus in the life to come. Last week we talked about how Paul was getting Jesus through the work of the Spirit in the midst of his suffering that was being caused because he was participating in gospel ministry. And in the midst of all that, he's getting more of Christ, which is his ultimate gain. But then he also says in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 23, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. He's, like, he, he's, he's longing to leave his body and to be with Christ, awaiting the resurrection because he would be getting more of Christ, his greatest gain. And how does he get this gain? Again, we said last week, he gets this gain through the gospel. He gets Christ through the gospel of Christ. Now, what is this gospel? Well, Paul's gospel in a nutshell, this is one of my favorite places to go to see uh, just this good summary of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance... 
what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, and then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Paul lets us know his gospel is an identifiable body of truth that is about what Jesus has done, his work. And what Jesus has done in his death on the cross is to die on behalf of sinners, that he died for sins, right? And then he was buried, meaning he really was dead. He wasn't faking it. And then on the third day, he rose, which was the proof that he dealt with sin. Because the wages of sin or the sting of sin is death. And if Jesus has resurrected from death, therefore he has overcome sin. And that victory is available to those who will receive it by faith. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. And so there's nothing more valuable in the universe, seen or unseen, than Christ and what Christ has done in the gospel. And so when you see that value, that ultimate value, this is when you become a Christian. You behold its value and you say, oh no, I I now see that this is the the, the greatest gain that I could ever have in this life or the life to come. And you receive that gain as a free gift by faith. And then once you've received that free gift by faith, you then live in light of that gift that you've received. You live a life worthy or in a manner worthy of the gospel. You think about it this way, like a sports team that decides that a championship is their most worthy pursuit. Once they decide that, they then live in a manner worthy of that championship. So they start to condition, they practice, they go to the weight room, they eat right, they work hard to get, to, get along as a team. And they, 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 their manner of life changes because they decide this championship is worthy. Now, the gospel isn't something that we strive for. It's not a championship we're trying to get. It's a championship that's already been won for us by Jesus. He has won the ultimate championship. He has won the victory over sin and death and hell. And he offers that championship to us as a free gift. And then once we receive that, we then live a life or a manner of life that is worthy of that free gift. Now, what is that manner of life? That's a big question. I mean, there's a lot of things we could say about it. Last week I said a little bit about it. I, I used the categories of our relationship with people and our relationship with money and stuff. Those relationships change in light of the gospel, the way we love people, both inside and outside the church, the way that we deal with our money and stuff, suddenly it, 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 there's a total shift because of what we've received as our ultimate gain. But Paul goes into some more details on verse 27, and I kind of held back on this. I wanted to go there last week, but I, I, I restrained myself because I, 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 this, is, this definitely needs some, some full treatment here. So verse 27 He describes the manner of life that is worthy of the gospel. He says, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, 
and not frightened in anything by, by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So a way we could sum that little paragraph up is that a, a, a life that is worthy of the gospel is a life that stands, that strives, and that suffers. It stands, it strives, and it suffers. You see there where he says, you are standing firm. Well, why would they need to stand firm? Well, because they're being opposed. He also says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. <laughs> People are in opposition to what the Philippians believe. They're in opposition to the gospel. Now, who are these opponents? Now, in the New Testament, there, there seems to be two big categories of opponents. So those that are coming from a Jewish background and those that are coming from a Gentile background. And so those who are coming from a, a Jewish background, it's more of an attack of legalism against the gospel. And anytime Paul planted a church with, with Gentiles and Jews, there was often a time, times of people that would come behind him, sometimes known as Judaizers, and they would try to say, yeah, 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 the gospel, that's important, you need to trust in that, but then you also need to be circumcised and eat kosher food, and then you'll be saved. And so this is, this is legalism. This is an adding of non-biblical rules or norms to the gospel. It's sort of a Jesus plus gospel. Now the Gentiles, instead of legalism, was more what we might call license. And so for them, because of, again, their, their culture being a very sexually immoral culture full of lots of different things, including pedophilia and orgies, they were, they were trying to throw out biblical standards for sexuality. They were also trying to adopt syncretism, meaning they were wanting to worship Jesus and other gods and goddesses. And so they are more on the license end of opposing the gospel. And these are both attacks, both opponents, so to speak. But not only that, the church of Philippi and certainly Paul was experiencing physical persecution. And they were attacked by both these groups. So the first wave of persecution against the church was Jews. The second wave was Gentiles. And so they literally were experiencing imprisonment, torture, even death. Now what about today? What are the opponents? Now, at least in the U.S. right now, we're not being physically attacked for our faith. Certainly many of our brothers and sisters around the world are. They're gathering today in fear that somebody's going to bust down the door and haul them all to prison. But not in the U.S. But we do have opponents, opponents ideological opponents to the gospel. And I would say these usually are in these two categories. They're usually in this legalism category or this license category. So again, any, any binding of people's consciences to extra-biblical rules and norms is legalism. And again, we're not talking about things in Scripture where we can point to and say, thus saith the Lord. Like, that kind of stuff needs to be honored and followed as a manner, a life that, a manner of life that is worthy of the gospel. But we're, what, we, what we want to stay away from is, is, is saying that extra-biblical things, rules and norms, 
are part of what it means to be saved, to be part of, of, of being a real Christian. So this could be anything from worship must be done in accordance to certain cultural norms. Like if you're a real Christian, you worship this way or that way. Or, or you must vote a certain way. If you're a real Christian, you have to not vote for Donald Trump or you must vote for Donald Trump. If you're a real Christian, you must be an activist in certain causes. Right? These, are, these are all adding on to the gospel. That, that what saves us is, is not these kinds of things, but instead what Jesus has done for us. And we usually think of legalists, we, we, we think of these kind of like judgmental people who hate rock music. Right? Like these are the legalists. <laughs> but that's really not what most in, in our church, in our context, are struggling with. I, I think one of the things that, that, that our context is struggling with is taking particular activism, political activism, and, and, and trying to attach that to the gospel. This could be anything from uh, sex slavery, homelessness, racial justice, abortion, gay marriage, climate change. The, the list goes on of things that are attached to the gospel. If you're a real Christian, you do this, and you do it in this way. Now, that doesn't mean that your politics and your political action shouldn't be informed by Scripture. Absolutely, it should be informed by Scripture. But if we can't draw a straight line from the Bible to particular political action, we cannot bind the consciences of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's an example. So we can, we can go to the Bible and we can draw a straight line from what the Bible says about caring for the poor. Old Testament, New Testament. That is clear. I don't think there's a Christian you could, that you could find on the planet that's done any Bible reading and say, does the Bible say that we should care for the poor? I guess, yeah, it does. But does the Bible say we must have universal health care? Well, no. Is, is that a way that we could care for the poor? Yes. It is. But can we draw a straight line from the Bible to universal? No, we can't. And so we could advocate for that. We could give a logical argument for it. We could be passionate for it. But at the end of the day, we can't bind people's consciences to universal health care. Now, we can bind people's consciences to say, if, if you believe in the gospel, you will care for the vulnerable. Or let's say, if, if we, we were to look at the scripture and, and say, murder is wrong. Yes, we absolutely. Old Testament, New Testament, which informs the, the abortion argument. Right? Abortion is wrong. Why? Because murder is wrong. But does that mean everyone must go to abortion clinic and picket abortion clinic? No, we can't draw a straight line from the Bible to thou shalt picket an abortion clinic or thou shalt advocate for universal Healthcare. So what we have to be careful is, is that what we're standing on, the ground that we're standing on, is the gospel. It is what Christ has done for us at the cross. Now what I, I'm not saying is that we use gospel, gospel centrality to dismiss the need to engage in social action. And that's been done throughout the last few decades especially. But we don't want to get confused about what is the gospel and what is not. Now you say, well, that would never happen. That kind of mixing and confusing, it, it has happened throughout church history, especially the last hundred years or so. In the early mid to 1900s, uh, uh, some theologians tried to re-engineer the gospel. 
They, they tried to say, the gospel is not Jesus needing to die on the cross for sinners. The gospel is actually Jesus coming to show us how to live a better life. And they, and they tried to deconstruct this need for a substitutionary death on the cross. It became known as the social gospel. And so instead of those who've trusted in Christ becoming brothers and sisters in Christ, in the church, everyone was a brother and sister because they were created by God. And Jesus just merely shows us how to live a better life. This then came about again in the late 90s, early 2000s, in what was known as the emergent church. It was pretty much the same song, second verse, trying to deconstruct the need for a savior from sin and instead just see Jesus as an example for how to live a better life. Now, Jesus is an example for how to live better. Yes, absolutely. But, but the core of the Christian message is Christ dying in our place and reconciling us who were once sinners but now forgiven and brought into relationship with God. A few weeks ago, I spoke at a Christian Black Lives Matter rally and, and um, I had a two-point sermon. I know it's hard to believe, but I, I, I really did. I had a short two-point sermon and the, it was an answer to why do black lives matter. And my first point was black lives matter because Black lives are created in the image of God, just like every other human being. And I got lots of amens. People are like, that's right, that's right. And, and a lot of other people in the rally said the same thing. So it was just like a reverberating theme. But my second point is, is that we know black lives matter because Jesus died for the sins of black people. And I didn't get amens. I got these weird stares, and I felt uncomfortable even saying it, that black people are sinners and need a savior, as do every other kind of human being on the planet. And it felt uncomfortable because it's not consistent with the cultural narrative currently about justice. That actually part of the solidarity that's shared with human beings is not only that we were created by God, but that we are sinners in need of a savior. It's how we can come together in reconciliation is because we know we all are in need of grace. And it helps us to move toward each other when we understand that gospel truth. And so there's a need for Christians to, to stand for the gospel. And yes, engage in social action, but not so in such a way that you lose the gospel. Now, um, the fan keeps blowing my notes, and then I'm like, where am I? That, that's like the current, I feel like the legalism, the adding on to the gospel. The, 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 the problem of license is certainly a problem as well. This is the dismissing of biblical norms and rules that we see in Scripture. And these biblical norms and rules are informing how we live a life, a manner of life that's worthy of the gospel. Just like in Paul's day, we see it in, in, in our day as well, uh, license in the area of biblical sexuality. And so you see Paul writing to the, the Corinthians who really struggled with this. <laughs> they were a mess in the area of, of sexuality. And this is some of what Paul tells them in his letter in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, do, not, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. 
Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. There's a lot that we could say about that passage, but if we just do a brief flyover, we we can see how Paul is is saying your life in Christ is connected to the way that that you express your sexuality. Because you are in union with Christ, you now display that union in the way that you practice sexuality. And so, again, nothing really has changed in terms of the desire to throw out those biblical norms, those biblical rules that are a way to live a manner of life that is worthy of the gospel. This is not the only license in our culture. There's certainly many more. But another one would be consumerism. Uh, Americans overworking or feeling very entitled to recreation and travel and entertainment or believing they always have to get something bigger and better or, or the fact that Americans have a higher standard of living than the history of our, in our, in our country and they give the least amount, uh, the lowest percentage in the history of our country. These kinds of things are, are, are license that does not show how worthy the gospel is. And so we have to stand, we have to stand for the gospel. But not just stand, we need to strive we need to strive. I think this is important because you can start to think, we just need to stand, we just need to hunker down, we just need to endure. But Paul is saying, no, you also need to move. You need to move forward. Verse 27, he says, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Again, this, this picture that Paul's painting is, is not a hunkering down. It's a moving forward. And the Apostle Paul, I mean, just think of him. He's in prison. And he's saying things like in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul isn't just sitting in prison, just waiting to get sprung. He's moving ahead. He's striving. He's advancing for the cause of the gospel. And this word that's translated uh, striving side by side is, the, is, a, is a great, is a very cool word. Soon athleo. Soon athleo. Athleo is where we get our word athletic. So uh, competing in a sporting event. And then soon prefix is we're doing this together. And so this is why it's translated striving side by side or contending together. It's a picture of a team working together toward a goal. Uh, I grew up doing a lot of athletics. Uh, my dad was my football coach and my track coach, and, and so athletics was a big deal. And, and, you know, grew up in Texas, so athletics is, is just competition. It's, it's, it's a really big part of the culture. And then we, we moved here in 1999, and our kids were like kindergarten, first grade, and they were participating in soccer. And so I got volunteered to be the assistant soccer coach of our little, you know, like first grader soccer team. And I'd never played soccer my whole life, so I knew nothing about soccer. But, it, you know, it really doesn't matter. They just kind of travel in a huddle, and they just all chase the ball. And, and so, you know, I was the assistant guy. So usually I just carried the equipment, just stood there. 
and then one day the coach was like, I can't be there on Saturday, can you be the head coach? I'm like, ah, okay, yeah, I can do that. And so I show up, and so I'm trying to help the kids get the ball in the goal, which is what the thing's called. It's called a goal, right? So you're trying to kick the ball in the goal. We're going to work together for this goal. And so as I'm out there doing that, I have this mom come out on the field, and she like taps me on the shoulder, and she says, Coach, don't you think we should just have fun? I, I just don't think we just need to be worried about trying to get the ball in the goal. And I was just like, what? What? What are you talking about, right? Yes, we want to have fun. We're going to have fun when we put the ball in the goal. That's going to be fun, right? And so, and so the, the, this, the thing that, that Paul is describing is this striving side by side to get to the goal. And what is the goal? It's not kicking a ball into the, the, the goal on a soccer field. The goal is advancing the gospel. And so this is what he's describing as, a, as, as, as the manner of life that is worthy of of the gospel is that you're striving together to bring that gospel to people who have not yet heard it. Uh, this usually feels counterintuitive. We crave safety. We crave control. We crave predictability. It's one of the things that's made this last few months so difficult for most of us is that we, we, we want control. We want predictability, but, but we just we haven't had, been able to have it and so you want to hunker down, but, but, but what Paul is saying, don't hunker down. He's saying, I want you to strive. I want you to advance. I want you to move forward even in the face of difficulty, of, of, of opposition. It makes me think of the D-Day invasion in World War II. Uh, when, when the ground troops hit the beaches in Normandy, they thought that most of the Nazi troops had been knocked out by the air war that night. What they didn't know is that the Nazis were safe inside their bunkers waiting for those ground troops to hit the beach and, and they just started mowing them down with bullets and bombs. And so when they got there, very surprised at all the, the fire that they were, they were taking, and, and so a bunch of them were hiding under this little ridge on the, on the beach and they quickly found out that the ridge was so low that it wasn't protecting them from the bombs and the bullets. And so the sniper fire was just picking them off behind that ridge. And finally, a small group of them decided, what do we have to lose? Like, we've got to stand up. We've got to move toward the enemy. We've got to engage them in combat. And as they say, the rest is history. They lost thousands of soldiers, yes, but they formed a beachhead there that began the end of World War II. Sometimes church is like that. You just feel like, I just want to hunker down. It's, life's hard enough. It's hard enough just to get to know the people that we have already in this church. It's hard enough to deal with the struggles and, 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 and the sacrifices. I, don't, I just can't advance. <laughs> we can't allow that to happen. We can't allow it to happen. We, we, we get up, we strive, we advance, even in the face of this crazy time. There's opportunities. I mean, if Paul can find opportunities in the prison, surely we can find opportunities in a COVID pandemic to advance the mission of the gospel. Paul also says that a, a manner of life that is worthy of the gospel is, is, is a life that suffers. He suffers. Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for his sake. 
engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have. Paul is not sugarcoating this exhortation to stand and strive. In case you thought, he's just giving us a pep talk and, and it's inspiring, but, but, it, but it's just not grounded in reality. No, it is grounded in reality. And he knows that what he's calling the Philippians to do is going to cause them to suffer. And it's not just normal suffering. Everyone's suffering. Whether you're Christian or not Christian, you live on this planet, you're going to suffer. He's saying, suffer for the sake of Christ. He says it twice in verse 29. For the sake of Christ, and then he says, suffer for his sake. He's talking about unique suffering for gospel mission. And it's not just something Paul's going to experience. He believes that the Philippians are going to experience it as well. And how does he know that? Because that's God's plan. Did you catch that? 29, for it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. I mean, I, I don't know. I read that. I'm like, I kind of had to stand back and go, really? That, that just as God has granted that you would believe in the gospel, he's also granted that you would suffer on behalf of the mission of getting the gospel to the nations? Why would God do that? Why would he ordain suffering for Christ's sake? Well, we've already seen Paul speak to this, and I talked some about this last week, but, 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 but it, for one, in the midst of that kind of suffering, you get more of Jesus. And that's one of the things Paul he's excited about. Verse 20, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. He's saying, I'm going to get more of Jesus, whether by life or by death, whether, whether I get imprisoned or tortured or I die, I, whatever. I want to get more of Christ. And so he understands that he gets more of Christ in the midst of suffering, and especially in suffering for the cause of the gospel, for Christ's sake. But not only that, Paul understands that God authenticates the gospel through the suffering of his people. God authenticates the gospel through the suffering of his people. I mean, if anybody knows that, Paul knows that. I mean, think about it. He's in prison for, for the gospel, and he's standing, and he's striving, and he's suffering. And the prison inmates and the prison guards are watching that happen. And they're also watching him thrive in the midst of that kind of situation where he's experiencing the joy that comes from knowing Christ in the midst of standing, striving, suffering. And as they watch that in him, they're like, uh, I'd like to know more. <laughs> I don't know what it is, Paul, what, what you're into, but I want to know more about it. Because what you're doing right now is authenticating this, this good news, this message that you are proclaiming. That's not just happening in Paul's life. Paul is saying this is going to happen in the Philippians' life as well. Verse 28, he says to the Philippians, And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So he's saying, Philippians, just as those 
inmates and those prison guards are watching Paul suffer and they're, they're getting interested in the gospel. You, your opponents are going to see you suffer well and they're going to both see their judgment and that there's salvation available to escape that judgment. I mean, Paul himself, before he became a Christian, he saw Stephen stoned to death for his faith. That had to be a part of, of what authenticated the gospel for Paul. Is seeing, was seeing Stephen stand faithfully and suffer faithfully for the gospel. Uh, a few months, uh, maybe a year and a half ago, we, we had a, a workshop here in our church, and it was about how to lovingly commend the gospel to our Muslim neighbors. And there was different uh, presenters, and one of those was a woman who had grown up in Indonesia who uh, shared her story, and she'd grown up in a, a Muslim home and she'd become a Christian. And her family was very, very upset that she'd become a Christian. And so one day she was at home and uh, she dropped by the apartment where her family lived and her dad literally held her down with a knife at her throat and, and tried to force her to recant her Christian faith. And she didn't do it. And thankfully the dad didn't kill her. Mom walked in and, and stopped it. What this, the, the, the lady didn't realize is that her younger sister was hiding in the other room and was watching her big sister take that kind of a stand in the midst of persecution that came from her own dad. And that was the beginning of her younger sister beginning to consider the gospel and eventually become a Christian. And so the, 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 the standing, the striving, the suffering for the sake of Christ, it's, it's part of how... God authenticates this gospel. It's part of how he shows how worthy it is, how much gain there is in having Christ and what Christ has done for us. So how do we respond? How do we respond? I, I think for some of us, the response is to receive the gain that Christ has offered on the cross. You, you can't really consider what does my manner of life look like until I really do believe that, the, that Christ and what he's done for me on the cross is my greatest gain. And so it may be perhaps that you've never received that gain that Christ has given you, has purchased for you at the cross and that you would receive that this morning by faith. If, if, if you're like, I'm not there yet, but I do want to talk more about it, I, hey, reach out. To me, you, you can even go on our website. Uh, we've got a little page there, uh, mercyhouse365.org slash respond, and there's a more thorough explanation of the gospel, and there's a place on there where you could reach out to us and say, hey, I want to talk more, or I'm ready, I want to be baptized, or whatever the case may be. But, but that's really where this starts. You can't really consider your manner of life until you've, you've seen the value that's in Christ and what he's done. For the rest of us, as we, as we hear what Paul is, is exhorting the Philippians and, and, and us to do is in terms of a, a manner of life, to, to resolve that we would adopt that manner of life, that by gospel grace and the power of the Spirit, we, we wouldn't hunker down, but we would stand, we would strive, we would suffer for the sake of Christ. 
And again, not in a self-sufficient kind of way, not in a, I've got to do this in my own power, but, but in, a, in a broken way, in a, in a, in a way of, where we enter in confession, like, Lord, I can't do this on my own. I can't do this in my own strength, but I want to. I want to stand. I want to strive. I want to suffer for your sake. And, and asking the Lord to, to develop that in us as individuals and in us as a church, and this is the third thing, it's to remember that we don't do this alone. I, I think that's one of the things about the, the soon athleo, right? We're contending side by side. And it, it reminded me of what uh, the Roman army tactic known as the living wall is it, a lot of like what Paul is describing. So a Roman soldier had armor on their front and no armor on their back. And the reason was is because the way that they, they fought was in this living wall, side by side with their other soldiers. And so as they stood side by side, they, they would stand and then they would strive. They would take a step together and they would take another step of ground for the Roman Empire. And then they would step again and they were just this like armored wall walking and, and taking whatever came whatever suffering they had to do. Because if they turned and they showed their back to the enemy and they were without their living wall, they were sitting ducks. And they knew it. And so as we consider this standing and striving and suffering, please don't start to kind of fall into the American individualism because you, you, you can't do this by yourself. You do it side by side. You do it standing in this living wall of brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and again, if you're going to live a life, live a manner of life that's worthy of the gospel, we have to keep going back to the gospel, keep beholding the gospel, seeing that the, the ultimate gain is Christ and what Christ has done for us in the gospel. This is what we're doing here. Right? Every time we come to this table, we're, just, we're being reminded. Because this is, this is what Jesus wanted us to say about his death. You ever think about that? J Jesus gave us a little tutorial. Here's what I want you to say about my death. I, I don't want you just to say, I lived a perfect life and I want everyone to have a better life. He said, I, I want you to remember what this bread and this cup is signifying. And so on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it. He gave it to them saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We're reminded that, that Jesus, he stood, he was striving, he, he suffered. And he did so for our sake, for our sake. In the same way, he takes the cup and after he blessed it, he gave it to them saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of of sin. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. He, he, he lets us know that, that we now, as forgiven sinners, we form a covenant community. We now stand side by side, standing on that gospel, striving in gospel mission, willing to encounter whatever suffering we may have to encounter. But we do it, we do it together. We do it in covenant community. And so this is part of what we're remembering when we, we come together and we take the bread 
and the cup. And so you have a little bread and cup by your chair. Um, and so if, if you look closely, you'll see there's a little piece of bread on the top. So if you take the first piece of plastic off the top, then uh, you can take the, take the bread. And you take the next piece of plastic, then you can get to the, to the juice. And so uh, if, if you are a believing Christian, we welcome you to take communion with us. And you just do that at your chair, and you do it whenever you're ready. You can have a time of prayer and confession, uh, but then take it whenever you're ready, and then we'll uh, close with some um, worship through singing. So let's pray. Lord, we are in, we're encouraged and we're challenged by this passage. Lord, we confess to you, it, it's, it's, it's kind of our natural inclination to, to hunker down, to seek safety, to to, to seek control. And so, Lord, we, we, we pray, Lord, you would, would help us to, to stand and to strive and, and to suffer for your sake. And so show us what that means, Lord, um, in our context, in our life, in our sphere where we have influence, in our church where we have opportunities here to advance the gospel mission. Help us to, to understand what that means and to stand on the gospel. Thank you for what you've done, Lord, to, to, to purchase this, this most valuable of treasures. And we celebrate that in the taking of the bread and the cup and then the singing of this, this song and worshiping you together. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.